3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You're on Tuesday Breakfast with 3CR. It's 7am and we've got in the studio me, Carnegie, Fung and Genevieve. Hi everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Um, For our listeners, you... um, won't know this, but this morning Carnegie is uh, on the panel this morning, which is very exciting. Yes, she's making her debut. <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel, Carnegie? You know, quite okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And for listeners that don't know, panelling is, you know, you're pressing all the buttons pretty much. <laughs> I feel like the listeners need a visual aid for what a radio panel looks like. Oh, I will be here to document it and post it all <laughs> on social media. So please check out uh, Tuesday Breakfast on Instagram if you'd like to see photos of Carnegie panel this morning. <laughs> yeah, and especially the system that we have is a little bit ancient. So a it little looks, bit. <laughs> it, <laughs> it looks like crazy, like yeah. hectic. Yeah. yeah, I feel like it's like a like a 70s spaceship or something. Like it's mm, yeah. lots of like dials and buttons. Yeah, it does feel like a spaceship. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty cool. All right, probably worth mentioning that we are now entering the month of Radiothon, um, very exciting. So June is uh, the month of Radiothon at 3CR, and uh, we're asking our listeners to be a part of community-powered radio, um, as it's only with your support that we are able to be independent and community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. So your support is absolutely key, and it keeps the community-powered radio on air Um We will plug this a lot more next week, but just a little quick um, note in terms of if you wanted to donate, you can go to the 3cr.org.au slash donate website or call us at 0394198377. Absolutely. Um, For the weather this week, it's looking pretty bleak. (laughs) We've got... Dangerous weather warnings all across the country. It's already cold and rainy outside, so if you're going anywhere today... Yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible outside. Yeah, there's, like, snow warnings. I mean, great if you're into the snow. (laughs) But, yeah, it's a very icy wind. Um, Last night, I'm not sure if you heard the wind. Oh, It it was... Yeah. Oh my god! It was howling. Really, yeah, it was spooky, like yeah. very intense, like woo, <laughs> <laughs> really scary. Cool. So we're gonna go to a quick announcement, and we'll be back with the news headlines. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. They're 100% recycled cards. Plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. 
shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're on Tuesday Breakfast with 3CR. Um, What's coming up on the show today, everyone? All right, we've got a big show, as per usual. Um, We're going to be playing some audio that uh, was broadcasted on Women on the Line, um, an interview with Meena Singh, who's a Yorta Yorta, an Indian woman um, and a legal director at Human Rights Law Centre. Um, And they discuss the gendered and racialised harms of bail laws in Victoria. Um... And then I believe we have another interview. We do with Annette Herrera, who is the uh, National Tertiary Education Union branch president at Melbourne Uni. And she will be talking to us about what it's like being the first woman of colour to be in that role and um, workers' rights, especially for casuals and women at the moment. Wow, yeah, that'll be really good. Um, And then we've got, just to round it out, um, playing some audio from an interview that was done on the Indigenous uh, radio program up in Brisbane um, on the show Let's Talk, where Bo Spiram interviews Sam Watson about um, the Disrupt Land Forces protest that happened last week um, at the Brisbane Convention and Exhibition Centre, um, just talking about, I guess, especially the police presence that was there last week, um, exactly what was happening down on the ground and, um, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, so news headlines start with a pretty depressing one. Um, the youngest daughter of the family that was taken to Christmas Island from Biloela has been medically evacuated um, after being ill for quite some time and her mum had been asking for medical assistance and was being refused, was just being given paracetamol. And now she's being flown um, for medical assistance. They think she might have septicema. And the photos are pretty heartbreaking Mm. on social media. Yeah, the story is, like, so tragic and upsetting. Um, The fact that, yeah, it took this long to get them to any sort of medical care and yeah the photos are just like heartbreaking yeah I I feel like it really um it relates to like a bigger issue that a lot of people face when when dealing with medical professionals is is not having their um symptoms uh taken seriously and um I know that this happens a lot with first nations people um, and, you know, you hear it happening a lot in the U.S. with um, black women who go in mm-hmm. um, needing support and needing medical assistance and, and being turned away or being given, like you yeah. were saying, um, painkillers. Um, so it, it happens with women in general, let alone if you're indigenous or black or mm. a refugee child, it would seem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was... Um, a study, I think it would have been a couple of years ago, they interviewed a bunch of med students in the US and um, a large proportion of them believed that people of colour could literally physically withstand more pain than um, non-people of colour, which, I mean, is just crazy. Um, and it kind of, like, feeds into that stereotype of, like, thicker skin and, like, 
ridiculous stuff like that. But yeah. Yeah, and the way this family has been treated, mm. you know, for the last few years, it's it's hard to believe. Every time I see a headline, it's like this is still happening. They're still being treated this way and kept on Christmas Island. They're two young kids. It's yeah, it speaks to a bigger issue in this country about how we treat asylum seekers and refugees and people of color. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, we'll watch this space and see, um, you know, how she fares in the next few days and few weeks. And, um, yeah, we'll, we'll update you all, um, next week. Uh, speaking of asylum seekers, um, I, uh, I'm looking at a, um, a, an article from Al Jazeera, um, <clears throat> Uh, talking about uh, Kamala Harris, a U.S. vice president, who um, kicked off a three-day diplomatic trip uh, to Central America, and uh, while she was there, um, talked about you know uh, the uh, work that they're doing in the U.S. to secure their border, um, and uh, she said. And this is a quote. The United States will continue to enforce our laws and secure our borders. If you come to our border, you will be turned back. Do not come. Uh, do not come. Um, there's been a surge um, in migrant arrivals from Central America fleeing poverty and corruption. Um, and, and yet this is the message that they're being greeted with um, as they try to escape and look for safety. Um we were talking about this off air just before, but I think a lot of people assumed that, you know, as soon as President Trump was out um, and, you know, we had a, a Democrat as as president and, you know, a woman of colour as vice president, that things would change um, and that we'd see more progressive policies. But, um, yeah, that, that hasn't really eventuated. Um, and you can see that with the... With with um, yeah lines like this from from vice, the vice president, but also um, you know the facilities that are being used to uh, detain children um, still in the U.S. So yeah, I think definitely important to note that the U.S. has an agenda, um, no matter if that's Republican or Democratic, uh, democratically led. Um, and especially considering Kamala's history, especially as Californian uh, <laughs> uh, senator, governor, yeah, <laughs> and her laws in terms of um, uh, incarceration laws uh, were, yeah, just really strict and really unnecessary and really targeted um, lower socioeconomic and uh, people of colour and, you know, not the fact that she would bring that history to this job, but, I mean, yeah, the Democratic Party has an agenda to play as much as the Republican Party, and they have, um, you know, <laughs> people that they need to pander to, and, yeah, so... Yeah, and the bar is just so low after the Trump mm. That's true, era, yeah. I guess it's like, well, as long as it's not that guy, but, you know... As long as it's not the big, evil yeah. orange man, yeah. then... <laughs> Um, it is interesting to note that um, in this article it states that the Biden administration has pledged a $4 billion plan 
<clears throat> to boost development in the region, uh, as well as $310 million in humanitarian aid to tackle what they call the root causes of migration. Mm-hmm. You'll be interested to see how this money is spent, what mm-hmm. it goes towards, and if it actually gets to the people who really need it. Um, yeah, I'm a bit hesitant to yeah, and to say whether that will tackle whatever causes, you know, yeah. uh, 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 affecting people in Central America and, and um, prompting them to... Uh, to seek safety and asylum in the states, and especially like I mean, this this is a good segue into my neck the next I guess headline. But in terms of that question of U.S. intervention, international aid, history tells us that that usually doesn't actually help that much, mm-hmm. especially um, taking on that paternalistic role that the U.S. does in so many situations. Um, and actually, I was going to speak a little bit about um, the current situation in Afghanistan, which um, I'm sure that listeners have heard that the U.S., this is actually when Trump was in power, um, but the U.S. has pledged to uh, leave Afghanistan. It was supposed to actually happen earlier in May. Um, that's, what the, that's what Trump had um, agreed with. But um, it's been pushed back to September and Biden has assured that uh, on the 20th, very um, this is very American, but on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, the last US troop will be um, taken out of Afghanistan. Um, But pretty much uh, the situation in Afghanistan is, you know, the US came in there after the 9-11 attacks and um, I guess overruled the Taliban government that was... Um, there at the time and reinstated an Afghan government and has pretty much been there. It's the longest war that the U.S. has ever fought in the history of the U.S. Mm. It's been like put into it $2 trillion. Um, they've been there, yeah, for 20 years. Um, NATO's been there, so Australia's been there, Britain, um, a lot of other countries, and to pretty much establish institutions and government and pretty much put uh, the Taliban at bay. Um, But they're pulling out, and I guess what that means for Afghanistan is the Taliban um, has a very clear opportunity to, I guess, regain control. And a lot of um, people are saying that that's a very, very likely thing to happen, um, considering that without uh, international support and aid, uh, like so many, I guess, intervened countries uh, that the West intervenes in, kind of don't actually have the right set up institutions mm-hmm. um, to support themselves. And so... Um, the U.S. has said that it's going to support from a distance, um, I guess, in terms of like soft power, which means like financially and like um, uh, that kind of thing. But um, there is a lot of fear surrounding what will happen in Afghanistan if they're going to go into another civil war. Um, and recently, actually, Australia um, shut down the Kabul 
our Kabul embassy. Kabul is the capital of Afghanistan um, for security reasons, pretty much. Um, like if the Taliban regains power, uh, the people working in the embassy, um, I guess they are a little bit worried about what would happen to them. And there's actually been a lot of backlash, especially from people that uh, had been in Afghanistan, uh, troops and missionaries, sorry, missionaries, mercenaries, <laughs> um, about what will happen to the uh, Afghans that worked with NATO and the West in terms of interpreters, um, people that helped them set up uh, institutions. They're really fearing for themselves in terms of the Taliban coming into power and being like, well, whoever worked with mm. these people. Um, and so they're pleading with Australia and the US to protect them. But at this very moment, we haven't really done anything about that. And mm. a kind of rolling off the back that the Taliban has assured us that nothing will happen to them. But, you know, yeah. So part of, you know, <laughs> protecting um, these people is making sure that they're okay when we leave these situations. So it'll be really interesting to see what we do from here. That was yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're studying this at the moment, aren't you, Jenny? <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm doing a study about diplomacy in um, the Middle East. It's very, very interesting and I think very potent. I mean, always potent, but especially a big question is, you know, intervention and Western intervention and how in the Middle East, especially Western countries over the last 30 years going in there have pretty much destroyed, like, yeah. the Middle East. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, there's the global power dynamic of Western countries having that power is, you know, it's not changing really anytime soon. So even if it's soft power or the type of intervention changes, that power dynamic always kind of stays mm -hmm. intact, I feel. Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, especially, you know, Westerners going in there having a very secular approach to their um political structure and like um, a very certain type of democracy mm. pretty much built actually on uh, Christian values which is I guess ironic yeah. but um, coming in there uh, with an um, Islamic uh, countries um, which to be fair every country has a very different interpretation of Islam not understanding that interpretation of Islam and kind of going in there with your secular approach and approaching it in that way has just like not <laughs> not been constructive at all so yeah um, well your study sounds super interesting <laughs> and interesting. yeah we should um, check in more about What's coming up next for you? Yeah, I'd be happy. I'm always happy to rant about. <laughs> I'm literally in my exam period right now, so I feel like my brain is yeah. like, <laughs> it's like exploding, full of just random stuff that I've had to read. So yeah, I'm always happy to rant. Great. Um, we've also, I think it was yesterday that it was reported that um, Israel has released two Sheikh Jarrah activists after long. Hours-long arrests, um, their siblings, um, and they were behind a social media campaign against forced expulsions of 
Palestinians in occupied East Jerusalem neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah. So that's, you know, something. (laughs) (laughs) Small wins. A small win. Yeah. And there's also the, um, I'll just mention this really briefly, um, in Israel, the potential for Netanyahu to, Mm. um, I guess, not be prime minister anymore. Um, He faces a topple faces being toppled um, by a coalition of eight parties that are united only by, I guess, their shared hostility towards him. He's been in power for 12 years, 12 consecutive years. So, but I mean, there's obviously a lot of doubts that the new government would have any sort of um, input into towards the Palestinian mm. um, conflict. Oh, sorry, apartheid. But, I mean... Yeah, it is likely, I guess, that he'll be toppled. He's not very popular, as it turns out, in government either. But <laughs> Well, hopefully that is on the cards. Um, all right, well, we might go to an announcement, and then we'll be back with a track. Independent and Peaceful Australian Network, IPAN, has launched a national people's inquiry into the costs and consequences of Australia's involvement in the US-led wars, the US alliance and its alternatives. The inquiry aims to promote a national conversation and is currently inviting submissions from organisations and individuals. The great majority of Australians have never been asked about this alliance its implications and its limitations, which has led to an uncritical foreign policy. It's time this changed. To make a submission, go to independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. That's independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. Submissions close on the 31st of July. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast and the time is 7.22am. The next track we're going to play is uh, Little Things by Ziggy Ramo and Paul Kelly. Um, uh, In an Instagram post, Ziggy Ramo uh, stated that the song uh, from Little Things, Big Things, Things Grow by Paul Kelly has always been such an important song to not only... uh, him, but uh, Australia. It was released in 1991, the same year as the Royal Commission into Indigenous Deaths in Custody. Uh, 30 years on, um, uh, he feels honoured to be given permission by Paul Kelly and Kev Carmody to revisit the story from another perspective. Little Things doesn't fit into a genre, uh, it doesn't fit into today's musical landscape, but this art felt urgent and uh, he wanted to share it with the world. It's interesting to note that Ziyu Ramo wrote these lyrics in November 2020 and at that time there were um, 441 Indigenous deaths in custody. Um, six months later there have been 474 Indigenous deaths in custody. The system isn't broken, it's working. Always was, always will be. Sovereignty was never ceded.
gather round people and I'll tell you a story. 200 years of history that's falsified. British invaders that we remember as heroes. Are you ready to tell the other side? We start our story in 1493 with a piece of paper called the Doctrine of Discovery invoked by Pope Alexander VI. Without this good Christian, our story don't exist. From little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow. Captain James Cook, he boarded a fleet And he was armed with the doctrine of discovery The same tactics were used by Columbus It's how today Australia claims terra nullius Cause on that paper, the Pope did write That you're only human if you've been saved by Christ And if there are no Christians in sight, the land you stumble on becomes your God-given right. From little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow. Is that your Lord? Because that's invasion. That's the destruction of 500 nations The genocide of entire populations Which planted the seeds for the stolen generation And grew into my people's mass incarceration Now we pass trauma through many generations The Lord can't discover what already existed For 200 years my people have resisted From little things, big things grow From little things, big things grow The wars continued since Captain James Cook And this side of history you don't write in your books You don't want the truth and you don't want to listen but how can you stomach Australia's contradiction? Cause we went to war in 1945 We were allies against a terrible genocide And I know it's uncomfortable But the irony I see is that you fall for them But you don't fight for me From little things, big things grow From little things, big things grow We should move on, move on to what? I still remember, have you forgot? That Vincent Langari knew others were rising. Gurindji inspired us to keep on fighting. So call it Australia, go on call it what you like. I just call it how I see it, and I see genocide. Now that you hear me, can you understand? There will never be justice on our stolen land. From 
Little things, big things grow from Little things, big things grow This is the story of so-called Australia, but this is the story of so much more. How power and privilege cannot move my people. We know where we stand. We stand in our law. From little things, big things grow. 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 So that was Little Things by Ziggy Ramo and Paul Kelly. Um, Genevieve, do you want to tell us what we've got next on the show? I would love to. So up next, we're going to play some audio that aired on Women on the Line this week. Um, It's an interview with Amina Singh, who's a Yorta Yorta, an Indian woman. Um, I will let the amazing women of women of the line, sorry, that's a tongue twister. The amazing women on women on the line introduce this one for you guys. I'm speaking with Mina Singh, a Yorta Yorta and Indian woman and legal director at Human Rights Law Center. Hey, Mina, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you so much for having me. So Human Rights Law Center is a signatory of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Services 28th May letter to the Victorian government, which calls for urgent bail reform in the state. And Victoria's current harsh bail laws have been in place since about 2017. So could you give us a bit of a broad brush overview of the current bail laws in Victoria and some of the key concerns raised by VALS and other signatories of that letter? Yeah, so we saw these Bail, these new, the current laws come into effect following the uh, terrible Burke Street incident, uh, where someone drove a vehicle down Burke Street and very sadly killed a number of people. And this person was a person who was on bail, and there was a lot of concern around how this person was on bail. And so there was a review of our bail laws, 
and the result of that was the introduction of these very tough bail laws that we now have today. What we have are bail laws that were specifically introduced to target violent offending by men in that, that specific context, but what we're seeing is that these bail laws particularly target women experiencing disadvantage and particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. Mm. And the way they do that is that we now have a reverse onus in regards to someone getting bailed. So previously, there was a presumption of bail unless it, there were certain circumstances. Now we see people having to themselves explain why they should get bail. Often people are doing that without legal representation and the circumstances that they have to explain why they should get bail uh, applies to a much broader range of offending. So we're seeing uh, women who are experiencing financial hardship. They might be uh, dealing with family violence, which can lead to all sorts of housing stability and, and lead them into homelessness and, and poverty. We're seeing lots of these women get trapped by uh, these bail laws. And when a woman doesn't get bail, she's kept in custody, in jail. She is disconnected from her family. She's disconnected from her community, from her culture, from her kids, from employment. There's just a, a stop, a breakdown in all of her in her life, basically, and even the shortest of stays in, in prison can have a massive impact on, on a person's life. Mm, absolutely. And I mean, for people who are sort of familiar with things happening in uh, the criminal legal space and around uh, Aboriginal communities advocating uh, for change, we've seen, you know, the tragic death of baby Charlie in Western Australia, um, which yeah. occurred, you know, when um, when a mother seeking assistance with a domestic violence incident was then was then picked up. Yeah, it's this real intersection between experiences as victims of family violence and the criminal legal system that is particularly trapping Aboriginal women um, and having just horrible impacts on Aboriginal women and their children. We see a lot of Aboriginal women not want to report family violence because of fears that their children will be removed from them rather than getting assistance to to have the family violence stop or to, to, you know, mother and children move to a safer space. We're seeing, sadly, far too many Aboriginal women getting incorrectly identified as perpetrators of mm. family violence. So they're being charged with offences. Intervention orders are being taken out against them when often the real story is that they um, haven't engaged at all in family violence or they've, been, or they've responded to family violence in self-defence. Yeah, And, you know, that's a real concern when there isn't a proper understanding of, of the way family violence is experienced by women, but also when there's no proper understanding of the very, very fractured, fraught relationship and deep distrust that Aboriginal women have for police. Absolutely. And, you know, these conversations are happening currently in the state of New South Wales about uh, criminalizing coercive control. And I understand that in Victoria, there already are some mechanisms in place around that. But, um, you know, something that really isn't being amplified in these conversations is the specific effects that this has on Aboriginal women and families and um, Aboriginal people escaping family violence situations yeah. or seeking to escape those situations. Yeah. And, you know, often when we talk about family violence, when an Aboriginal woman is the victim of family violence, of intimate partner violence, 
we don't talk enough about the fact that it's not simply, it's not only Aboriginal men who are inflicting violence, mm. it is non-Aboriginal men, men from all sorts of different backgrounds who are inflicting violence on Aboriginal women. And, you know, you have to understand these issues in the context of both racism and sexism and mm. that potentially if an Aboriginal woman is in a relationship with a non-Aboriginal man and is experiencing family violence, that those are two very difficult sets of power systems, you know, control systems that are being dealt with that can be abused by the perpetrator of family violence. Mm-hmm. You know, an Aboriginal woman calling the police, you know, so she actually does call the police, you know, and she's upset, she's hysterical, but her partner presents as, you know, rational and is stable and able to speak calmly to, to the police and deny what's been said. You know, there's all these other layers of power interplay that come into these relationships um, that make it really difficult for the stories of Aboriginal women to be understood. Yeah, and, you know, this is not to say that these power imbalances don't exist in, in other relationships, but really that they are exacerbated by the effects of colonization, but also the specific mm. interaction, um, you know, through the colonial development of policing in this country um, yeah. that really specifically affects Indigenous people. Yeah, and, it, and it's, you know, it's an extension of this idea of, of Aboriginal people being inherently criminal, that that we're just, you know, we're bad people, that we always do the wrong thing. You know, that sort of narrative was brought into Australia about, you know, Aboriginal people, anyone who wasn't white being inferior. And so that provides a lot of the justification for Aboriginal men and particularly women when combined with, with sexism, provides the justification to, to treat Aboriginal women appallingly. And we see that play out in policing and we see that play out in prisons. Turning to the question of uh, families uh, more generally, the anniversary of Sorry Day, which commemorating, uh, which is commemorating the Stolen Generations, passed on the 26th of May. And yeah. we know that the removal of Indigenous children from their families in this country is still shamefully an ongoing and increasing phenomenon. So yeah. do you see any impacts associated with current Victorian bail laws and other failures in the implementation of uh, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody on current rates of Aboriginal children in out-of-home care in the state? It's really important to look at this holistically so you, and, and, and see the intersections between different areas. The way governments work is very, is very siloed. We have ministers for all these different things and portfolios and departments for lots of different issues that aren't seeing how issues play out across in the experiences of, of, of Aboriginal families. So one of the legacies of the stolen generation is intergenerational trauma and that, you know, the trauma that goes with someone throughout their whole life as having been removed from their parents at a very young age, age having been placed in homes where they were most likely, or no overwhelming evidence supports this, that they were abused in every possible way. Or, you know, they were adopted out to families where, you know, their identities weren't supported, their cultural connections weren't supported. You know, these sorts of traumas, if unaddressed, continue for a lifetime. And we see that the health outcomes for members of the stolen generation are particularly poor, especially around mental health. And, you know, for those families, those adults to grow up and have kids and combine these issues with over-policing Aboriginal people, which uh, leads to over 
representation of Aboriginal people in criminal justice systems. Mm-hmm. And what you see is the justice system also breaking up families, taking away adults from their families. As I said at the start, talking about Aboriginal mothers going into prison and leaving families left behind, so fracturing families that way. But also, we have a, a age of criminal responsibility at just 10 years of age. Mm. Ten, you know, children as young as 10 years of age can be arrested, prosecuted, put in jail for for offences. So we see families facing so much fracturing from a whole range of spaces. And so we see the family unit really getting besieged by a whole range of factors that we need to think holistically about and think about the interconnection between all of these factors. Absolutely. I'm really glad that you brought up the the age of criminal responsibility because that really brings together all of these different kinds of concerns where when we think about changes that really need to be made to the criminal justice system, acknowledging that that can you know never really be a quote-unquote safe place, um, but that there are all areas that need to be addressed here. You know, it's... Um, across across the spectrum and when you think about things like the criminalization of poverty and how that intersects with this it's very multifaceted so I appreciate you contextualizing it in that way yeah and I think you know just the same as wealth can pass between generations poverty passes between generations and you know if you we know how much more likely people are to get engaged in the criminal legal system if they're experiencing poverty homelessness if they're battling with with mental illness or physical illness. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you um, taking the time to contextualize this in a broader way and really situate the importance of uh, Val's call for these changes Mm. to Victorian bail laws because I think if we just look at the bail laws themselves, we don't see the full picture. So thank you for putting that into perspective, Nina. No, that's okay. And, And, I mean, Val sees the impact of this every day. They they are the frontline workers. They are the ones representing Aboriginal men and women, and they see how these laws impact in the, in the people that they represent, in the cases they hear every day. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me about this. That's okay. Yeah, really appreciate um, your insight. My pleasure. Absolute pleasure. That was Mina Singh from Human Rights Law Centre, providing some more detail on the harms of current Victorian bail laws for Aboriginal women and families. Before we finish up, here's Narita Waite, CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, talking about just how important it is to change these laws. You know, we're just asking for a fair justice system. Mm. We're just asking to reverse the changes that were made out of gut instinct rather than evidence-based policies. We're asking the government to lead, not to follow. We're asking them to follow their moral conscience um, and their desire and want, um, as seen by a lot of initiatives, including safe black convictions, white public openness, for a fair, a fair and just future for all, not just some. To read the full letter that Val's addressed to the Victorian state government on the 28th of May about the importance of reforming draconian bail laws, you can head to vals.org.au. That's V-A-L-S dot org dot A-U.
was a song uh, by Jar Skills. Uh, it's called Super Soul Sis. Um, and just before you heard Priya from Women on the Line uh, interviewing Mina Singh, um, we'll pop this on our website, but you can read uh, the whole letter on the uh, Victorian Aboriginal Legal Services website. Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter. All right, we're going to go to another track by an artist that I discovered this week called Dua Sala, uh, who's a queer American Sudanese artist, songwriter, poet and actor based in Minneapolis, Minnesota, 
Their debut EP, Nur, was released in January 2019 uh, by the Against Giants record label and uh, received critical acclaim. Um, Salah said that among other reasons for making music in Sudan, there's a lot of queer, trans and non-binary people who are closeted. So I try to put out so much content that's like, this is a quote from them, that's like the gay and trans agenda as possible. On Rosetta, Salah released the track Smut, sung partially in Arabic, hoping to break into the Sudani market and connect with Sudanese listeners. This is a song called Moth. Dua Sala with Moth. Next up, we have on the line Annette Herrera. Annette is the current University of Melbourne branch president for the National Tertiary Education Union, and she is the first woman of colour to be in this role. Annette is also the former convener of the University of Melbourne Casuals Network and has collectively organised the wage theft campaign. Welcome to the show, Annette. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. Um, 
So we have met before once at um, the women's conference for the NTU. So it's lovely to speak with you again on air. Yeah, it's really it's really great to, to speak with you again, Kanahi. Um, so the government has announced that the university funding will be reduced by nearly 10% over the next three years, and this is after the 2020 hit that universities have already been reeling from because of COVID. Um, and TAFE will also be slashed by 24%. Um, we've already seen the effects of this last year. What effects have you seen um, in your work, and what do you see happening down the line? Um, sure, and, and thanks for for that question. Um, for I guess just to give a, a bit of a background, um, higher education sector is highly feminized, um, and so the job cuts, um, and in real terms, there's going to be cuts for many years to come around income and super, will have a really big impact on women in the sector, and we already have had a sector that is quite casualized, and so um, this is both professional and academic um, um, staff, and so um, the economic picture is pretty bleak, Um, but at the same time, I'm hopeful that that as a union we can start really collectively pushing back um, with organized union power. Yeah, and um, as I mentioned before, you were part of creating the Casuals Network at the University of Melbourne for this exact purpose. Um, what was the main aim of that? So uh, previous to taking on this leadership role, I was um, the co-convener of the Casuals Network at the University of Melbourne, and we specifically organized casuals around issues around dignity, dignity of work and fair pay and secure jobs. And so um, one of our campaigns, which is still ongoing, is was reclaiming wages. Um, and really, it, it was never really just about the wages. It was about having dignity at work, about being paid for the hours that you do. Um, and, and again, um, it was done with collectively. So when I say that, I mean that workers were, co- were collectively organizing themselves, even most precarious workers and the university setting um, really pushing back. And so I think that is something that we're going to need to do quite a lot more in the years to come in higher education. Did you find that um, it was quite empowering for casual workers last year to have this network? Look, absolutely. And so um, in the in particular, we've seen a um, across the universities really an explosion of grassroots organizing um, around um, casualization and against casualization. And this is when I say grassroots, it's really member led. So um, that's something that we haven't really seen before. That NTU has had casual campaigns, but they've really come kind of top down, and this is really a bottom up movement. Yeah, that's that's really. Um great to hear and you know as a member of the NTU as well I've felt that um, it has been a lot of top-down kind of approach towards a lot of issues affecting workers in the tertiary sector have you have you felt that as well look I've been a delegate and a uh, branch representative now branch president and I think that um, we can start to really the way we change that culture is by um, staff 
and members getting involved and running the campaigns and the organizing they wish that the union would do. And so that's why I got involved in the union was was really happy with the way campaigns were being run. And I, I thought, you know, I want to run campaigns and organize um, in a way that's going to be meaningful um, for workers at, in my campus. So I really um, stressed for listeners out there is just to really get involved in your union at the local level to really start making impacts that are national. Absolutely. And I definitely relate to that. Um, you mentioned that, you know, the workforce is extremely female. I think the average university worker is um, is female. Um, how have you seen women and especially women of color and gender diverse employees be affected? Sure. So um, just again, uh, probably just for a better background, nearly six in 10 university um, uh, graduates are women and a high proportion of staff are, are women. And um, so I, I suppose just to kind of cut to the chase, it's the heteronormativity of our institution is much harder to challenge in a pandemic, but it's not impossible. So, um, you know, what we're seeing, I suppose, is, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of anger at the moment um, around the job cuts and economic um, insecurity. And so I think this is, again, a real opportunity for um, our women of color, um, for our LGBTQI um, family to really push back um, against the cuts. So, again, um, you know, the stats really show that it's women, that it's non-binary people that are really impacted by casualization. And so it's it's really thinking about organizing um, around some of those issues that I think is we're going to see um, more of. And, and that's something that we're seeing more of around the world in feminized sectors becoming more militant. So a lot of teachers and nurses, for example, in the U.S. have gone on strike. You've seen garment workers in Myanmar um, back in March, predominantly women, um, going on national strike. So um, I, I think that this is something that we um, – is the next step for us is really starting to mobilize, um, um, again, our feminine sector. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, even around the world, we're seeing um, these movements, and a lot of them even have to do with women who do a lot of unpaid work that is not being recognized and not being um, valued as it should be, um, in addition, of course, to paid work. Um, what Do you have any tips for women and gender non-binary and women of colour in the tertiary sector who are maybe looking to organise? Yes, I, I do have some, a few tips. Um, so I would say um, look, join your union as a first step. Second is really get involved if you're already union. So um, find your people and become more active. So um, organising is really something that you do um, collectively. So find your trusted colleagues. Um, if you're part of a, a pride network, um, you know, start organizing there and really start to think about what are some of the issues, issues impacting your specific community. Um, and the third thing I would say, Kanaki, is always include the students, always include alumni, and think about your community in broader terms than um, just staff or even just working even just like employment issues, it could be an issue that could be around dignity, could be around um, recognizing, um, you know, some of those issues um, in the workplace and in the community. 
Um, I think that's really, really great advice. Um, what do you have any sort of further advice for if you know women are doing this kind of organizing at their institutions and they get a lot of pushback from people who are kind of used to not doing it that way or are kind of stuck in their ways and are not seeing the value in a new kind of organizing? Yeah, I, that's a really great point, and I would say that um, it's, I think finding your community is really important because when you get pushed back and um, when you're, if you're told you, know, you can't organize in this way or, um, or you know, just, I guess, pushed back from the top, I would say it's really important to find your people um, and, and, you know, continue on with the work. Um, and really center yourself with um, with the best interests of um, of the staff there. Um, I would also say something that kind of keeps me going is that uh, as a unionist and as an activist is that you can't get fired <laughs> from doing that work. So it's like, well, okay, just you know, you don't want me to organize that way. Like, well, you can't really stop me. So I think that that's something that, again, if you're doing it collectively, um, you're going to, you know, maybe upset the apple cart, but that, um, you know, that that's it needs to be done. And this is a crisis we're in, and um, it's not going to get any better unless we participate to get ourselves out of it. That's actually a really, really great point. Um, so for anyone who's listening and is interested in organizing, do it because they can't fire you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if you do want to get involved in the NTEU, it's nteu.org.au, and you can just search for your institution and join the union and get involved. Um, thank you so much for speaking with us today, Annette. Oh, thank you for having me. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram.
You are on Tuesday breakfast. The time is 8.04 a.m. Speaking of sponsors, why don't you sponsor the radio and donate? (laughs) This month is Radiothon Month, um, and we are asking you to donate to Community Powered Radio. Um, We have over 400 volunteers uh, that help 3CR uh, stay on the air every single week. Um, and make your radio a force for change. So it's very important that you donate, and you can donate online at 3cr.org.au, or if you're um, a little bit adherent to the internet, that's fine. You can call us on 94198377, or you can send your cheque um, or some money to us um, at our address, which is P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood, Victoria. All right, well, we're going to be talking about this a lot next week, so I'll just save my breath now. <laughs> um, we're going to have a very exciting um, show where we're going to get back some old voices uh, from Tuesday Breakfast, have a chat to them and what's important about community radio. But for now, we're going to go to another song. This is by the Lejadu sisters, who are identical twin sisters that uh, were a music duo um, around the 1960s to the 1980s. Uh, they're from Nigeria, and this is a song called Life's Gone Down Low.
was the Lejadu sisters uh, with Life is Gone Down Low. It's a really great song. Um, All right, we're going to go to a quick announcement and we'll be right back. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Independent and Peaceful Australian Network, IPAN, has launched a national people's inquiry into the costs and consequences of Australia's involvement in the US-led wars, the US alliance and its alternatives. The inquiry aims to promote a national conversation and is currently inviting submissions from organisations and individuals. The great majority of Australians have never been asked about this alliance its implications and its limitations, which has led to an uncritical foreign policy. It's time this changed. To make a submission, go to independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. That's independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. 
Submissions close on the 31st of July. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. So Disrupt Land Forces uh, protest happened all of last week. Um, since the 1st of June to the 3rd of June, uh, there were protesters outside of the Brisbane Convention and Exhibition Centre, which was hosting the Land Forces Australia Indo-Asia Pacific International Land Defence Exposition. Um, I'm going to play some audio that uh, was an interview from the show Let's Talk, which was an, it's, is a national Indigenous talk show um, broadcasted in uh, Brisbane um, with the host Bo Spirim. Bo speaks to Sam Watson, who is actually on the ground at Disrupt Land Forces protest. They have a conversation about exactly what was happening uh, about the police presence on the ground, exactly what Disrupt Land Forces protest is about. Uh, so, yeah, I hope you enjoy. It's really important stuff um, that Disrupt Land Forces was doing up in Brisbane. All this week, down at the Brisbane Convention Centre, uh, here in South Brisbane, there's been a protest. A protest, I should say. There's been a festival of resistance uh, out the front of uh, the Land Forces gathering, uh, Land Forces uh, is an international arms, uh, international Asia, Indonesian, Pacific uh, arms fair uh, where they're um, selling off and showcasing uh, from army tanks to um, uh, to drones, uh, where they have drones that um, uh, ones that have weapons, you know, and obviously they're, they're sort of like um, fighter pilots that are you know, you know powered by somebody in front of a computer, and just sort of other, um, I guess, military-needed um, um, tech and, and technology and all this other stuff as well. Uh, that's been going on since Monday. Uh, the Festival of Resistance started last Thursday as well, which we saw some amazing actions happening, uh, stopping uh, our trucks and army tanks getting in there as well. I will bring uh, my guest... And now, uh, Sam, good morning. How are you going? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Good, good. Before we go any further, your mob in your country, please. Um, I'm Wanjirabara, uh, Yugambe speakers, and Birigaba Wawiri speakers. Um, but I've, I've grown up in, in um, this city here all my life. Deadly. Uh, thanks for that, as, uh, for that introduction. Um, you know, like the, the the first question that I wanted to ask, and you know, maybe some of the listeners may not be well aware of sort of uh, the land forces uh, events that they have, uh, these type of conferences, um, and maybe I didn't explain it too well, but I guess from your own perspective, being around uh, over the last couple of days, what is it? Um, I guess land forces would describe itself as. Um an exhibition of military and defence technology, um, such as uh, vehicles and um, um, uh, autonomous um, um, vehicles and um, logistics um, technology. Um, but I would describe it as a mass celebration of of death machines and suffering. Um, it is. It's the biggest 
uh, weapons expo in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, and basically, um, you know, there's, there's a heap of companies there who are complicit in these, um, ongoing, um, invasions and, and genocides happening in places like West Papua, Palestine, um, Afghanistan, Iraq. Um, and there's, there's companies like Ryan Mittal and DB Shanker there who, um, you know, started during the Third Reich, um, you know, transporting the stolen wealth of people in tr- concentration camps and, you know, making, um, ammunition for, um, the Nazi parties, um, the Nazi party's forces. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a conference where the kind of violence and the destruction that, that these weapons cause is on celebration. Um, I've heard that inside they have simulations where you put on a VR headset and you walk around shooting. Um, you know, I've heard that there are, that there are, um, basically video games where people can get up on the back of a truck with a turret and, um, you know, pretend to shoot people. Um, what they're not talking about in that conference is, you know, the, the white phosphorus that's dropped on Palestinians. You know, white phosphorus burns um, on contact with air and doesn't stop burning until it's depleted. Um, or, you know, the the missiles that, um, you know, are, are dropped on, on Gaza. Um, or, you know, the weapons that are going to the um, Indonesian military to... to um, roll across West Papua, um, terrorize West, to terrorize West Papuans and take their land. Um, so yeah, I guess that's, um, that's land forces. Well, that, like that was going to be one of my questions was sort of weighing up sort of the perception that people have of sort of, you know, um, of this uh, conference uh, that they're having is, you know, one might be saying, oh, you know, it's just to protect the country from when we, you know, get invaded or when we go to war. Then on the other hand, the reality of many, and and not just sort of what we're seeing online, but many people that have come to Australia due to sort of these horrific things happening are are a part of these rallies and protests as well. Um, Could you just sort of tell us a bit about some of those people that may have been there and some of the things that they've been talking about? Yeah, so... I guess just on perceptions, you know, I think that it's pretty unreasonable for, you know, the government to say that it's for defence um, or, you know, against uh, foreign threat um, because Australia hasn't been a serious threat of invasion since 1788. Um, really what our interests are are imperialist interests and nationalist interests where our government are trying to drum up support for themselves um, by talking about, you know, a war with China or, or, you know, a looming terrorist threat. You know, when you look at any invasion attempts that have actually happened on, on this continent, um, since 1788, you can see that, that that's just absolutely rubbish. Yeah. So I guess, I guess that's perceptions. There's, there's some people here from West Papua. Um, there are some people here who are veteran anti-war activists. Um, there are people here who, from the Middle East and and um and Asia, uh, where these weapons have been sent, and you know there's there's mob too. There's also refugees have recently been released who've been coming down, um, and it's just you know it's a it's a big mishmash of all these people who have an interest in seeing this expo shut down, and these these companies um, not being able to sell their weapons anymore. 
Mm, I had Uncle Kevin Buzzcott on the program, I want to say Tuesday morning, um, and he mentioned, you know, on his country, Arabana country, there's a massive uranium mine. Whether or not the, the, the uranium from his country is being used uh, for the weapons, uh, we, we do know uranium, I believe, is used for weapons as well as, you know, nuclear power as well. Um, you know, and I know uh, in different parts of South Australia, it was used as a testing site, you know, to, to, to drop bombs like Maralinga and uh, Woomera and... At the moment now, there's actually a testing site where they're shooting rockets uh, into the space, like, you know, the space race and stuff as well. And it's where uh, an ancient sort of women's site is. And there's actually a documentary being made at the moment about it, which I want to get that mob back on as well, uh, because I know some of them were supposed to be here uh, for this event as well. But, you know, we spoke about perception and we spoke about sort of the reality of of what is happening as well. Um, You know, like, you know, when I think of these things, you know, like, I think of, what's that movie? It's with Nicolas Cage, um, and he plays like an arms dealer, you know. Um, he plays, yeah, you know, and he starts off just sort of selling, you know, uh, guns in his neighbourhood and then sort of eventually gets bigger to where he's, like, selling weapons to um, countries and then sort of goes into sort of, um, you know, the market of where he's selling weapons to, like, dictators and sort of to arm each side of, you know, like um, a war and stuff as well. Um, whether or not, you know, these things are used for that as well, it's sort of, you, you know, is there a war that sort of Australia's involved in now to sort of justify, you know, like the amount of sort of weapons that they're making? Because I know it was last year uh, Scott Morrison came out and said, you know, he wants to sort of get into into the arms deal race or whatever it is and, you know, he's putting billions of dollars into this, you know, building back, you know, in South Australia, they're building um, uh, submarines as well. And um, I know on, on over the weekend you went for some tours to some different factories. What were some of those factories? Yeah, on the weekend um, we went out to Red Bank. Um, at Red Bank there's a um, military park, industrial park, um, and there they have uh, the buildings of two companies that I mentioned before, um, Ryan Mittal and D.B. Schenker. Ryan Mittal um, is a company that, as I mentioned, made um, munitions for the Nazis, um, made their money arming a fascist regime. And now they haven't changed much. They're um, building um, tanks and they're building um, munitions still. And they're a company that, you know, their weapons have caused untold um, hurt and suffering across the world and, and for almost 100 years now. And the other company that we uh, visited out there was uh, D.B. Schenker. And D.B. Schenker, a company that also got their start um, in Nazi Germany, um, they're a company that actually worked on logistics for transporting the stolen wealth of of Jews and um, LGBTI people and, and Romani people who were put into concentration camps. So things like gold wedding rings and other gold and silver jewellery, um, you know, gold teeth and any kind of valuables that they could steal from these people who they had put into a concentration camp. You know, that's how D.B. Schenker made their money and, and survived the fall of Nazi Germany through that stolen wealth. It's crazy, like, you know, hearing the history of sort of, you know, um, these corporations and how they began and what they're involved in now and just to sort of, you know, try and, you know, speak as if they're sort of a, a legitimate sort of, you know, or, you know, corporation that is, you know, um, out here just sort of living free, I guess, you know, and, and, you know, it, it's crazy, you know, when we sort of bring up these, uh, history and historical facts of, of how they got their start. I'd just love to sort of get, 
um, yeah, I guess, you know, an update or just sort of a, your point of view in terms of what has been happening down there and, and if they have been heavy-handed as well. Yeah, so we, um, we started on Thursday last week. Some people jumped on some tanks. Um, one of them was built by Rheinmetall. It's an unmanned autonomous tank. Um, oh, so it's like controlled by like a, like a, like the drones. Yeah, yeah. It's an, un, it's an unmanned tank. Um, you know, it has a big gun on the front and, um, you know, someone can sit in a control room or at a, at a laptop and just drive it in. They don't even have to put themselves in danger, you know, while they're invading, um, these people's homes. Um, but some people jumped on top to stop it getting into the convention center. And, you know, when lots of us heard that, we rushed down there to support them, make sure that, um, you know, they were as safe as possible, make sure that they knew that they had the support. And, you know, they held that up for five hours and the disruption to the conference has been going since then. Down on the ground there, the, the police have been um, pretty heavy-handed to people causing disruption, um, you know, to people making noise, to people... Um, giving the conference um, attendees, you know, these weapons executives and stuff, peace of their mind. Um, they've made several arrests of, the, of those people causing um, disruption. You know, they, they've, they've even harassed people who, who were just there to support. You know, on uh, Tuesday, which was actually the first day of um, the conference, um, you know, after they'd set up from Thursday, um, you know, they tackled someone to the ground for... Um, you know, blowing in a vuvuzela, um, and you know, tackled them to the ground, ripped their shirt, tried to tried to rip their pants off, and um, you know, took them to the watch house and charged them with, um, you know, that video is online too. I saw it a couple times. Yeah, yeah, the videos are online. So um, there's, there's there's quite a few videos online. You can check out Disrupt Land Forces on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, also, there's some people from Make West Papua Safe who um who have been putting things up on their Facebook and, you know, there, there's so much in there of, of, of the police, um, you know, really being heavy handed and overreaching. Um, there were, uh, there's been, there's been two police sided with, with these thin blue line patches, um, on their vests, which I think is, is actually a patch that the, the Queensland police, um, administration has told them that they can't wear because it's a, it's a symbol that's linked to fascist groups and white supremacist groups. Um, and it's a symbol that the counterposes against Black Lives Matter and says that, you know, no cops, cops are the, are the thin blue line between order and chaos. And we know that's rubbish. You know, we know in our communities that we keep us safe. Mm-hmm. So yeah, to see that is, um, is quite distressing. Um, but yeah, the, the cops have been, um, you know, quite handsy and there's, there's plenty of evidence of it. Um, you know, trying to, trying to obstruct people's views of bystanders that are watching on as they arrest people, you know, then grabbing those people, um, when they don't move back fast enough or, you know, they, they say like, actually I'm on public property. I have a right to be here. I'm not obstructing. I'm not within a meter of, um, the arresting officers. So, you know, I have a right to be here. Um, you know, they've, they've made all these arrests to try and intimidate people and, and to try and, um, repress the the disruption and resistance that's going on down there. They don't have a leg to stand on with a lot of these cases. Um, you know, I saw him grab someone yesterday and arrest them for supposedly assaulting police. But, you know, I saw what happened and what was happening was that um, the police were pushing this person. This person put their hands up to say, you know, like, 
back off, I'm moving back. When they put their hands up, their hand touched the police's hand, and the police said, right, you're under arrest, you just touched me, that's assaulting police. So, you know, I'm sure that those people will be able to fight a lot of those charges, but, um, yeah, the police are really overreaching and being heavy-handed down there. You're on Tuesday breakfast. Uh, that was uh, Sam uh, Watson talking to Bo on Let's Talk About the Disrupt Land Forces protest. That comes to the end of our show. Um, we had a really jam-packed show. You can listen back to it on our podcast. Um, we had we, uh, Meena Singh, who's a Yota Yota, an Indian woman, um, and legal director of the Human Rights Law Centre, discuss gender and racialized harms of bail laws in Victoria, um, after which we had an interview with Annette Herrera from the NTEU about casual employees um, and women, and then we just heard from Sam Watson. Yeah, and just lastly, before we go, Radiothon, please donate. Uh, you can donate online at 3cr.org.au. Um, otherwise, you can phone us on 9419 8377 uh, our supporters is what keeps us on the air and keep us on the air Yeah, <laughs> please it's really important that you donate, it's really important to have community radio um, so yeah. otherwise hope everyone has a nice week, tune in for the breakfast shows this week and uh, stay tuned to 3CR, we've got Accent of Women coming up now 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.